You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Your brain is paying attention. Your neurons are communicating with bursts of chemical and electrical signals. But what about when your brain lights up with fear? Fear is a strong emotion, and it's nature's way of preparing you to deal quickly with a threat. From car crashes on slick roads to overwhelmed storm drains, this weather event is already wreaking havoc. Fear is a useful emotion. It protects us. But some perceived threats send it into overdrive. As more coronavirus cases are discovered in the U.S., the death toll is rising as well. The coronavirus epidemic is the kind of thing that catapults brains into high gear. Not a surprise, because it could be deadly. It has already killed thousands, but then so has seasonal flu this year. It's natural to feel fear during this global health emergency, but how can you tell if your alarm response is protecting you or getting in the way of protecting you? Can fear do more harm than good? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode of our regular look at critical thinking, the psychology of fear, and how to prevent your brain from being hijacked by the very biological response meant to keep you safe. It's Skeptic Check Pandemic Fear. Here's what's been happening to many of us, and to our brains, since the coronavirus emerged and began to spread. First, we hear something like this. Global hot zones, the coronavirus spreading. Fears grow of a global pandemic. A huge spike in cases in Italy. One particular part of our brain is already processing it. One of the most important brain structures with respect to fear is the amygdala. It's a small almond-shaped structure on both sides of the head, buried under the temporal lobes. It receives sensory input from the environment. Its neurons fire rapidly in response to patterns of sensory input that indicate some kind of threat. That engaged amygdala triggers neuronal and hormonal changes in the body. Those changes include the release of adrenaline to generate quick bursts of energy expenditure, movement of oxygen-rich blood to large muscle groups, and shutting down of non-essential functions. The amygdala-mediated response to threat is what we mean by the term fear response. Okay, your body is poised, it's teed up to respond, but it's what we do next that matters, responding sensibly to the facts or letting irrational fears steer the ship. Panic shopping, it's happening all over the country. Suddenly basics are running off the shelves and the most sought after item is toilet paper. My mom is a nurse at a Toronto hospital. Um, One day a patient had come up to her and asked for a mask and my mom being a nurse, she has to ask the patient, oh, why do you need a mask? And the patient replied to her, there are just so many Chinese people here, I need a mask. I think probably infectious illnesses have always been a threat to our species and we may be evolved to respond to them disproportionately in relation to other threats, especially when those infectious illness threats are ones that are novel or seem to stand out in some way. I'm Peter Hall. I'm a professor of public health at the University of Waterloo in Canada. An extremely fearful reaction can send rational thinking running out the back door across the lawn and up over the fence. Hightailing it out of there is surely advised when a lion is jogging toward your picnic spot on the savanna. But 
Is avoiding air travel or rushing out to buy supplies, are those examples of a panicked reaction or just practical preparedness? What this health crisis requires and what your brain is prompting you to do may be different things. How is fear shaping our response to the coronavirus outbreak? And is our behavior proportional to the threat? Fear is something that mobilizes us very effectively to deal with physical threats. Is very adaptive in that respect. It mobilizes our body without thinking and very quickly and automatically to fight or run away. So it's very effective in those contexts, and that's arguably the context within which it evolved. So that's very different from thinking of it as something that facilitates behavior or interferes with behavior. Doesn't necessarily have anything to do with behavior. Well, we've seen a kind of widespread change in behavior, right? Some behavior modification going out there amongst the populace. Elbow bumps are replacing handshakes, and there's a run on hand sanitizer. Airplanes are more than half empty, and sell-offs in the stock market. I mean, those might not sound so rational. How can we tell the rational ones from the irrational ones? Well, there's there's a lot in there. I think that the behaviors that are most important for people to focus on are precautionary behaviors that are by now pretty widely disseminated. Um, And those include making sure that you cough into your arm rather than your hand, washing your hands properly and frequently, as well as avoiding touching your face. And really the implementation of those is what is most critical and, and what people need to be focusing on. And the emotional response of intense fear doesn't tend to contribute to performing those. What it does tend to contribute to is more of those behaviors that are not actually very protective of the individual and not very constructive on the level of the population, like panic buying, like irrational behavior manifesting and, you know, economic disruption. Okay, so let me just get this straight here. Fear is an emotion, but what you do next is behavior, and that could be, you know, good, maybe motivated by the fear, or irrational. Yes, and behavior can occur in the absence of any previous emotional state. In fact, most of our behavior from one day to the next is is not driven by emotion. It's driven by routine. It's driven by whatever is cueing us in the environment. But there are some types of behaviors that are driven by fear, and those behaviors may not always be helpful in dealing with the threat when the threat's not a physical one. Okay, so is our behavior, in the case of the coronavirus, proportional to the threat, in your opinion? I mean, if you live in the U.S., for example, your risk of contracting the new strain of coronavirus is pretty low, certainly lower than catching the, if you will, ordinary flu. And in the months since the coronavirus outbreak took hold, uh, 8,000 Americans have died of the flu, not the coronavirus. So tens of thousands of people die of the flu in the U.S. every year. Why hasn't the flu virus also prompted mass behavior modification? I think that's an important question and actually really gets down to the crux of the situation here. Um, Part of the reason is that the seasonal flu is not quite as deadly um, in terms of the number of people who contract it, who who die. Um, It's actually much less deadly currently. But the absolute number of people who die from complications due to the seasonal flu, as you point out, is much, much greater in the United States and in most countries around the world. The flu is something that is a genuine threat, and it's a threat not just this year, but every year. And yet we don't have the same type of fear responses in relation to it. Likewise, we don't engage in precautionary behaviors to prevent its spread uh, as much as we should. And one interesting thing about all of this is that adopting the precautionary behaviors to prevent the spread of COVID-19 throughout the population are the same behaviors that will prevent the spread of the seasonal flu. And so that's another reason why, as a population, we really need to be focusing on the behaviors. We'll you know, get the direct benefit of reducing the spread of COVID-19 in the population, and we'll have the indirect benefit of also reducing the spread of seasonal influenza, which is perhaps a more genuinely dangerous threat. Okay, well, straight out, what are you seeing that is irrational? I would say that some of the stocking up is, is not totally rational to the extent that it is what is ironically going to produce shortages and make it a little more difficult for people to do the things they need to do to prevent COVID-19 to spread in the population.
So finally, how can we check in with ourselves during this outbreak and be skeptical of our own responses to this threat and whether they're proportional to the threat? In other words, can we know when and if fear has gotten the best of us? I think when fear itself becomes the preoccupation or what-ifs are really becoming the only thing that you're, or the main thing that you're thinking about, then you know that your, your thinking has been hijacked a bit. Really, if you want to reduce your risk, you just need to refocus yourself on the behaviors, the precautionary behaviors. And I'm talking there about the hand washing, the, the coughing into the arm and avoiding touching your face. Those kind of things are what we need to be working on doing more consistently. And if we're finding ourselves preoccupied by what ifs, that's replacing attention to doing the behaviors that actually will make a difference, both for us individually and for the entire population. Peter Hall, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Peter Hall is a professor of public health and health systems at the University of Waterloo. Social psychologist David DeSteno says that this is a good time to be skeptical of what your body's fear response is telling you to do. We have the motivating emotion, that's good, but we also need more than that before we take sensible action. When we're talking about things like coronavirus, the problem is um, the second thing we need besides having the emotion uh, be appropriate for the context is to have some knowledge that on which we can anchor our decisions. When we don't have a, a, some real statistic that we can actually anchor and think about, and most people aren't great about thinking statistically, we can engage in really, really poor decision-making. Um, as we're seeing now, people are unfortunately assuming, you know, every person of Chinese descent might be carrying the coronavirus, even though most of the people in America who have it are not of Chinese descent. We don't have knowledge, relevant knowledge, about epidemiology or statistics. Suddenly, there's more things that we don't know the answer to, like, hmm, I wonder if this face mask really works. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that person who looks like they're sweating has a fever. And because we don't know the answer to those, the more details we think about, the more opportunities there are for fear to fill in the blanks. And it actually makes the whole situation a lot worse. Well, what's the lesson here? I mean, is it simply to tell people the facts and just get the truth out there? Or is that sort of uh, irrelevant because they're going to react emotionally? I think the trick is to get the information out there because the best advice you can have is to really trust people who are experts in this and, and understand the way transmission works and how best to prevent it. But the problem there is fear is also an emotion that tends to make us not trust other people, right, unless we know them well. And in a situation where we don't have – we're trusted government and experts – these days is is unfortunately uh, at a nadir. Um, I think we're we're in a in a perfect storm of succumbing to the psychology of fear. Well, is this effective? Because you know, I watch the news on television, and they do seem to have quite a number of experts. Uh, you know, the the head of the World Health Organization or mm -hmm. uh, the CDC or whatever, and they come on and they say, "Well, look, you know, try and put this in perspective because this, that, and the other, and the, the you know the mortality rate and all that sort of thing." Mm -hmm. But in fact. From what you say, it sounds like, well, yeah, okay, but nonetheless, I, you know, I'm afraid of that guy in the subway. Right, and and that happens, and and the only way to 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 stop that emotion, to stop that fear from biasing you, is to understand how it works. So you're not going to stop that initial kind of impulse, that gut reaction of, oh my goodness, this person who's sitting next to me. They look sick. I bet they have coronavirus, even though the odds are astronomically against that. You're not going to stop that from happening. But by understanding the way fear works, you can try and correct for that. You can say, yeah, but I'm not going to treat this person, especially if they're Chinese, poorly be just because my gut is telling me because I see on TV coronavirus and people, of, of people from China that this person is likely to have it. And so as you say, Seth, you're not going to stop it, but you can overcome it. All right. So uh, how do you deal with this yourself, David? I mean, what do you say to someone uh, who has just said to you, I'm so freaked out, I can't control my fear of the coronavirus epidemic? I'll say a few things. One I'll say is try not to think about it, because the more you think about it, the more fear you're going to have. And, and try not to turn on the news and don't follow every single website that is talking about the, the, the dangers coming. But that said, recognize that 
what fear is doing is it's trying to work for your for your body, right? It's trying to save you from some thing that is a danger. But the fear that you're feeling isn't calibrated correctly, right? If you actually look at the data, the odds of you coming into contact with someone who has coronavirus are exceedingly low. The odds that it's going, if, if you don't have a major health problem, that it's actually going to lead to a major, major health catastrophe for, for you is exceedingly low. And so, yes, be vigilant. Yes, wash your hands. Yes, do all the things the experts say. But try not to obsess about it because if you obsess about every single detail, it is going, the fear is going to infect each of those details and raise the probability that, that you think something negative is going to happen. It sounds like this is just one more example where a mechanism that uh, is effective and useful in protecting an individual may not work so well when it comes to the, you know, the broader societal effects. That's right. I mean, if, if you were surrounded by people who were dying of coronavirus in your town, it would make very much sense to isolate yourself and to be careful. Please, I, I wash your hands, do what, do what you should do to protect yourself, but don't be running out buying face masks that probably won't work. Don't be trying to avoid going to Chinatown to support those local businesses when the odds of those things happening are very low. Our brain evolved to have emotional responses to what was happening around us, and it can't easily differentiate on a gut level between what it sees in your neighborhood and what it sees on TV. All right. Well, then finally, David, it sounds like indeed this is a perceived danger where the perception is perhaps out of scale with the actual danger itself. But let's say a worst case scenario emerges and it's and it's more lethal than we thought or mm -hmm. that uh, this outbreak recedes. But the next one is highly lethal, uh, highly contagious, just terrifying. In other words, what if our fear is proportional to the threat? Isn't mm -hmm. it then useless to try and con control our fears then? I mean, is fear just something that it's going to be there no matter what? If your fear is, is well calibrated and proportional to the threat, and if you have knowledge that is accurate and relevant for how to deal with the threat. So what I'm saying is, for folks who work for the CDC and for the government, fear of, the ne of this or the next pandemic is very important because it will motivate them to prepare, to spend money, to stockpile drugs, to do things that, for whatever reason, haven't been done. But for the individual, fear can lead to irrational behaviors because for most individuals, we don't know the best way to combat the virus. We don't know the best face masks to use. We don't know the best strategies for containment and quarantine. And so in those cases, fear may push us to behave in ways that aren't very helpful. You need the emotion calibrated correctly, but you also need some knowledge, some expert knowledge in that domain to use it wisely. So can I ask you, David, uh, hmm? are you a uh taking the uh, subway to work still? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. And I will tell you, when the person sitting next to me sneezed today, I had the impulse to walk away. Um, but I think it's, it's just important to be, to be prudent. It does, it's sure, what's the cost of washing your hands? That makes perfect sense. But other things can kind of take us down avenues that are not only irrational, but harmful to other people around us. David DeSteno, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Seth. David DeSteno is a social psychologist and professor of psychology at Northeastern University. Well, one thing I've noticed, Molly, is that uh, each member of the Big Picture Science production team has reacted differently to yes, the coronavirus. It's true. it's true. Some people are fearful, others are less fearful. Okay, we won't say any names. Some people want to continue traveling on airplanes and others would prefer to stay at home. And a couple people have gone out and bought more than one bottle of hand sanitizer. Again, all of this anonymous. Yeah, except that I have to say, I just love airline food. Later in the show, historian John Barry shares lessons from the Spanish flu pandemic a century ago. But first, it's easier to manage your fear if you don't have to confront a dangerous situation directly. But what about the doctors and nurses who walk into an infectious disease ward even when no one else will? You'll hear how one doctor does it next. Can we think rationally during a global health crisis? We're talking about it in this episode of Skeptic Check, Pandemic Fear. I'm Big Picture Science.
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We've been talking about why it's important to understand whether it's cold, hard facts or the chill down your spine that has you driving through three counties to buy a bottle of hand sanitizer. By the way, we found that a case of a dozen bottles of hand sanitizer that, pre-epidemic, sold for $135 on Amazon, is now going for $740. Wow, that's more than $40 a bottle. Well, the market at least is fearless. This is all a lot to process, so let's take a breath and do one thing that we know is rational during an epidemic, washing our hands. Now, you may think you know how to wash your hands. You've probably been doing it a while. But the World Health Organization, or WHO, its guidelines include some tricks that might not be part of your habitual routine. Big Picture Science is up to the challenge of demonstrating how to wash hands on radio. We'll take you through the proper steps and post a video of it on our website. Now, we all agree that Sarah has the nicest hands of anyone on the show. No offense, Seth. (laughs) I'm not offended. In fact, I'm going to keep these gloves on. So she will be demonstrating the WHO guidelines. So turn on the faucet, wet your hands, then get enough soap in your hands that you can produce a nice lather. Put your palms together and really get in there. Go clockwise and counterclockwise. Okay, so hands together, palms together. I'm doing it although my hands are dry. Okay, got it. Right, right. Then flip one hand over so you're looking at the top of your hand. Put your palm on top of it and really get the top of your hand soapy and foamy. So once you've done that, take your hands apart, put your palms together, interlace your fingers, and really start to get the sides of your fingers all soapy. That is a lot of foam right now. (laughs) It really is. I am effective. Make the letter C with your hands. Turn that so the C is actually intertwined. And I know this sounds complicated, but it really will be obvious on the video. So once you make the C's, Rub the tops of your fingers against your palms on both hands and really get in there. So you're working the high C's there. That's right, the high C's and the low C's. Grab the thumb on one hand and basically try and almost twist the thumb off of your hand. Switch thumbs. And the last step you want to do is to take the fingertips of one hand and put them on the palm of the other and rub. We touch a lot with our fingertips, we don't we? We touch a lot. Yeah. And get that area of your hand that meets your wrist, because that often is overlooked. Now, this is quite elaborate the way you're doing it, but when <laughs> you do it, um, and you get used to doing it this way, one flows into the other, and it doesn't take a- as long as it does to explain it. It really does. It's very efficient once you get it once or twice. <laughs> so once you're done with that, you have to rinse off. So don't touch the faucet with your nice, clean hands. Hit it with your elbow or your wrist. Rinse off nicely and then dry your hands with a clean paper towel or air dry. You don't want to use that grimy towel that you wipe down your counter with. That's just defeating the purpose. And this is something that we need to do repeatedly whenever we touch something new? Yes, whenever you touch something new, something dirty, something in the public, you touch your face, basically wash your hands all day long. All right, Sarah, thanks. Wash our hands often, do not touch your face, and there will be a video to Sarah's demonstration on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Sarah, thank you so much. No problem. My name is Davey Smith. I am the Chief of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health and a Professor of Medicine and a Virologist at the University of California, San Diego. As someone who washes their hands many, many times a day, uh, that was an excellent description. Washing hands saves lives and protects myself every day in my work. Dr. Smith is leading the team that's preparing San Diego for a possible outbreak of COVID-19. Now, dealing with an outbreak requires that he stay calm, that he stays rational. Well, we wanted to learn how he does that while managing a large infectious disease team. We have about 100 and 
almost 20 faculty within our division, so we're quite big, and quite a few of us are physician scientists. And in that role, we both see patients and do research, and some of us work in the hospital for infection control or developing clinical trials for new drugs. And at times, parts of my day, I do almost all of those things. And give us an overview, please, of what happens when a patient comes into the hospital with an infectious disease, because I would assume that one of the first things you need to do is figure out what it is. Yes. uh, Actually, that's a very interesting part of my job is that people come in and they might have a coughing or fever or chills, and you don't know what's causing all those. And as an infectious disease specialist, part of our job is to figure that out. So which tests to run, what sort of infections could be causing those symptoms, and really sort of sorting out what the mystery illness is at the time. Now, you are an infectious disease doctor. At what point did you receive an alert, a notice about the novel coronavirus, and, and sort of sit up and take notice? Uh, In November, when we heard the reports coming out of uh, China that there was a novel coronavirus um, circulating. We have had uh, multiple coronaviruses cause epidemics. Um, Uh, Because SARS SARS and and MERS are both examples of coronavirus. That is correct. And they belong to the same family as this one. And we know that there's quite a few of them that circulate in bats. And eventually, one of them will pop over to a human and cause outbreaks like this. Now, you said you were alerted to the outbreak of novel coronavirus sometime in November that would have been November 2019. Would you have been receiving the same information as the public? Did you read about it in the the newspapers? Or is there a, a private channel? I assume there's a private channel between doctors and the CDC and the WHO. I, I learned about it in the newspaper about the same time that a lot of my colleagues were just starting to text one another, basically. Did you uh, we really? We sort of Yeah, (laughs) we did. And so what was it about the report when you read it and you thought, as a doctor, you thought, hmm, that is troubling? As a virologist, I thought this was troubling right when I read it. In the news, it was quite downplayed at the time. Um, But then amongst my colleagues, we had a different discussion like, oh, no, here we go again. And the questions were, who is at risk? How is it spreading? What is the real pathology here, et cetera, to really figure out whether or not this is going to be coming to a hospital near you. Now, I wonder also, as a scientist who studies viruses, if you have more than one response to an outbreak, I wonder if you both feel quite concerned for the people who are at risk, but I wonder if you also have curiosity about the virus itself and its extraordinary evolutionary adaptation and its ability to jump from a non-human animal into a human. Yes. uh, Infectious diseases are fascinating to me. That's one of the reasons I went in to be a specialist in infectious diseases, and specifically viruses are quite fascinating. Different from other medical specialties, infectious diseases deals with basically other organisms that are trying to eat you uh, versus where we just have problems with our body, heart disease, GI disease, those sorts of things. So I am definitely drawn and fascinated by infectious diseases, but at the same time, my whole job is to stop them. Have you experienced any fear um, in this current outbreak, or are you sort of trained to iron out that fear and replace it with another set of responses, another set of emotional responses? Yes, I think that uh, we're trained to not panic. Uh, One of my favorite quotes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, don't panic. And in this setting, it is really important because panic can be deadly in and of itself, even maybe more so than the coronavirus causing us to not do the right thing. So as a physician and infectious disease specialist and very interested in public health, I can have lots of concern, but not panic. Aren't panic and fear different things? Isn't panic how you respond and fear the emotion that you feel. So you could feel fear, but still act rationally. And panic is a set of behaviors, whereas fear is an emotion. Absolutely. So I think having fear is okay, and then recognizing it. So if I am scared or have fear about something, then have the insight to know that I'm having that emotional reaction and not to let it go into panic, which would be a behavior-related Have you ever met a virus um, or another pathogen that actually made you quite fearful? Oh, sure. Um, I went into infectious diseases because I grew up in the time where HIV was killing lots of 
people in my own community as a gay man. And it was very fearful. So, but that also said, I want to do something about that. So I became a virologist and an HIV specialist and an infectious disease expert. And you still work with HIV now, don't you? Oh, yes. Um, it's still it's still a problem. So it needs more research, needs more care. Um, I'd like to fix that problem. When you're about to visit a patient, what goes through your mind as you walk in and you and you prepare yourself to treat that patient? I guess I'm asking, what's it like? What's it like to walk into a room that many of us will never walk into or might be quite fearful about walking into? I have to remember when it was a time when I was... Um, new to me. Um, At the moment, I do it so often, and my colleagues do it so often that it is second nature. Uh, The procedure, just like washing your hands, turning them over, twisting the thumb, everything is a very orchestrated dance that keeps everyone safe. And I would guess you also have to be nimble and be able to adapt yourself, (laughs) as, as viruses adapt to situations. As you learn more about a virus, you may have to change how you respond to it and develop new habits and new rules based on new facts. Especially in the setting of an outbreak, it is very important to know thy enemy, so know what the pathogen is and how it operates, make a plan, and then work that plan. But then when new information comes up, be aware of that new information so you can readjust your plan. And that is really the key for how to deal with an outbreak. Are viruses always our enemies? No. There are some times when um, viruses are useful. Uh, Right now, here at UC San Diego, we're very interested in using viruses to treat drug-resistant bacteria. And then there's other instances where viruses, most viruses out there are harmless. But there's just those that want to eat us that we want to take care of. When you say eat us, that's not a scientific term, is it? No. Uh, but you could think about it. The viruses come in, they kill the cells, they are using our tissues for their own uh, consumption. I think it's uh, a way to think about it. Now, the, the current government has shut down a number of research programs designed to help prepare us for pandemics. Now, you were talking about preparedness. Uh, one is the surveillance program, PREDICT, that's ended, and the epidemic monitoring and command group that was inside the White House National Security Council, and then the whole response infrastructure that were all put in place during the Obama administration right after the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Does the loss of that affect you and your ability to do your job? Does it affect the ability for us to do our job? Yes. But I do think it's human nature. If it's not happening at the moment, then a lot of this infrastructure that we have in place to help protect us, sometimes we let it go because it costs money. And maybe we think about using that money for something else that we can see right in front of us. So I understand that it's human nature for these things to sometimes go away, but hopefully we've learned our lesson that we need this good infrastructure to predict when the next outbreak is going to occur. It's not when, it's not if, it is it is when. Well, Davey, what's the final bit of advice that you want to leave listeners with? Um, if they're still feeling kind of jittery, they have some anxiety about this new virus, what would it mean to think like a doctor and do you have any last pieces of advice you want to give people? That's a very good question. So I think that uh, anxiety and fear, especially with reading all the news reports, is absolutely normal. And then to recognize that that's what it is, it's a normal reaction, and to stay alert. And um, one of the biggest things that we can all do is wash our hands. It can be just as simple as that. The other thing is that the public health officials will probably give us other directions of when to stay home, when it's okay to go out, when it's good to go to school, etc. Following those recommendations would really be important for a person's own safety, but also the safety for those around them. Well, Davy Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Dr. David Smith is a virologist, and he is the chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Public Health at the University of California in San Diego. As we heard, the advice from medical professionals obviously depends on them having the facts. But what happens when the facts aren't available? 
The Spanish flu claimed somewhere between 20 and 50 million lives. What the world didn't get right a century ago is a lesson for us today. They had planned this enormous parade, and the medical community wanted it canceled because they were afraid it would spread the virus. And reporters were quoting the medical community, and the editors were killing those stories. Renowned historian John Barry and how you can tap down your fear with facts and how government lies made a deadly pandemic deadlier. How to think rationally during a public health crisis in this episode of Skeptic Check, it's pandemic fear on big picture science. A century ago, the world was simultaneously engulfed in World War I and a flu pandemic. Writer John Barry's book, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, has become a classic account with its unflinching examination of the intersection of culture, politics, and medicine during a global conflict. The Spanish flu killed between 20 and 50 million, with some modern estimates suggesting as many as 100 million. Coronavirus is not the Spanish flu, but the pandemic at the dawn of the 20th century continues to provide powerful lessons for us right now, says Mr. Berry. The central take-home message from the 1918 flu, he says, tell people the truth. The current coronavirus epidemic has prompted conflicting messages from health officials and President Trump. This came unexpectedly a number of months ago, and we made a good move. We closed it down. We stopped it. Otherwise... uh The head of CDC said last night that you would have had thousands of more problems if uh, we didn't shut it down very early. It was a very early shutdown. That take conflicted with what the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Ghebreyesus, had to say. This epidemic is a threat for every country. And as we have said before, even the high-income countries should expect surprises. The solution is aggressive preparedness. This is not a drill. The Spanish flu was so named not because it started in Spain. Evidence suggests that it actually originated in the U.S., but Spain was one of the few countries honestly reporting about it, while the U.S. government tried to control the message. The rest of Europe was at war, so to keep morale up, uh, both sides censored the press, and there was very little written about anything except Spanish influenza. Uh, The king of Spain got sick, so that made some news. Uh, In the United States, there was not outright censorship, but there was a lot of pressure and there was self-censorship. What were the Spanish papers and the other papers that were reporting the flu? What were were they saying about it at that time? And that was early uh, 1918, right? Correct. It It was the spring. Well, that spring wave was relatively benign. It was probably a lot like our ordinary seasonal influenza. A lot of people in Spain were getting sick and elsewhere, but it was actually kind of a hit or miss. There were great swaths of the world that were missed entirely by the spring wave. The virus turned a lot more lethal and came back in September with a vengeance. Uh, There was a probably a 14- or 15-week period beginning in late September when probably about two-thirds of all the deaths that occurred were squeezed into that very short time frame. And we're talking about a lot of deaths, uh, 50 to 100 million people, which if you adjust for population would be about 225 to 450 million people today. But if the Flu was initially quite mild. Doesn't it make sense that people might not be reporting on it because there was a lot else that was happening in the world, and yet you use the word censorship. Why is that? Well, there was censorship. It was outright censorship. And when I said it was mild, that was really in comparison to the fall wave. So there was reason to be alert and concerned. The virus was spreading at the same time that World War I was underway, and President Wilson had passed the Sedition Act, making anything that people said or printed that went against the war effort a crime. 
How was talking about the flu, reporting on the flu, something that was damaging to the war effort? And did it actually become a crime? Well, there was an intense effort to keep morale up. So anything negative, the press tried to avoid it. You know, army camps banned songs like I Wonder Who's Kissing Her Now, for example. Uh, That was considered bad for morale. You know, sauerkraut was renamed Liberty Cabbage. But there was this intense pressure, more so than at any other time in American history, including World War II, including the Red Scare, to create this uniform patriotism entirely supportive of the government. You refer to the Sedition Act, which made it illegal to, quote, utter, write, print, or publish any disloyal, scurrilous, or abusive language, unquote, about the government. So, and truth was not actually a defense. They enforced this law. They sent a U.S. congressman to jail for 15 years under this law. And flu was certainly a negative. They felt that it would detract from the war effort. It would distract from the war effort. There was, in fact, at least one newspaper that tried to cover it honestly, and uh, the Army started prosecution proceedings against that newspaper. So even though reporters wanted to report on the story, and I believe that doctors wanted uh, their letters printed warning about the disease, the newspapers wouldn't do it, and the newspapers were getting their directive from the president? Well, it wasn't that direct. It was more self-censorship in the United States. What you're just referring to is something I wrote about in Philadelphia where they had planned this enormous parade, the largest in the city's history, and the medical community wanted it canceled because they were afraid it would spread the virus. And reporters were quoting the medical community and the editors were killing those stories. The Liberty Loan Parade did go forward. And just like clockwork, 48 hours later, which is the average incubation period for influenza, the disease exploded in Philadelphia, which turned out to be one of the hardest hit cities in the country, if not the world. I give you a sense of how much the media twisted things. When in Philadelphia, they finally closed schools, saloons, theaters, banned public gatherings, banned church services. Uh, One of the newspapers actually went so far as to say, this is not a public health measure. You have no reason for alarm. They think people were. At the same time, people were dying, sometimes within 24 hours after the first symptoms. Uh, They were dying sometimes with horrific symptoms. So all this is going on when the press is telling you, this is ordinary influenza by another name. People knew it was not ordinary influenza by another name. So they very quickly lost trust in authority, and that meant they, were, they, they didn't know who to believe or what to believe, and it became every person for himself or herself, uh, which is not a good place to be. The public had an absence of information or misleading information, but they could see what was happening around them. You can't cover up the truth entirely, can you? So the fear rushes into that vacuum. They don't know what to become afraid of, so they're afraid of everything. And then you write that that had a bearing on how they responded and how they pulled together, or rather how they did not pull together to help one another. What happened? Because I believe in one case, some patients died of starvation because no one would bring them food. Exactly. There were, you know, going back to Philadelphia, which happened to be a city that I f- focused on in the book, uh, the head of a volunteer effort kept issuing appeals for volunteers, and no one was showing up. And she finally issued, you know, this contaminatory statement saying, I mean, just attacking folks for not coming out and volunteering, saying that people were, in fact, starving to death, uh, not because there wasn't enough food, but because nobody wouldn't bring it to them. I think that ultimately society is based on trust, and trust disintegrated. Society began to fray. Uh, There is a 
sober, serious scientist who had been dean of the University of Michigan Medical School before the war and was head of communicable diseases for the Army during the war, who looked at what was happening around him and worried privately, uh, said if the current rate of acceleration continues, civilization could easily disappear from the face of the earth in a matter of a few more weeks. That's how bad it got at its worst. Because there are very few places that told the truth. One was San Francisco. In San Francisco, the mayor, the city council, business leaders, medical professionals signed a joint statement which was printed in huge type on you know a full page of the newspaper. It said, uh, wear a mask and save your life. Now, as a matter of fact, the mask didn't do any good. But that is a very, very different message than this is ordinary influenza by another name. And in San Francisco, San Francisco functioned unlike most other places. Well, but John, can it also create more panic? So tens of thousands of Americans continue to die every year from flu, just ordinary, I'm going to say ordinary in quotes, so seasonal flu. Now, if I had a map that refreshed every 30 seconds about who had caught the flu or who had died from the flu and followed it the way that I've been following coronavirus, I wouldn't leave the house. So I wonder if there's such a thing as too much reporting. Um, You know, the media are being charged right now with inflating this crisis and creating panic. Well, I think the media is trying to tell the truth, and the truth is is not necessarily pleasant. You know, the people like uh, Tony Fauci uh, from National Institutes of Health, or you know, Ann Shuckett from uh, Center for Disease Control, they get out there and have very measured, careful statements, which are truthful and are representative of the truth. They're not selected the way a lawyer might select facts. And I don't think the press is hyping anything. I think they are reflecting what that what they're being told by people who know what is going on. Uh, you have politicians who attack the media, but what they're really attacking is the truth. The fact is, this is something which we should be concerned about. I don't like the phrase risk communication because risk communication implies managing the truth, and I don't think you manage the truth. I think you tell the truth. You know, like you go to a horror movie, and you are always more afraid before the monster appears on the screen because your imagination is more powerful than reality. Whenever that monster appears, no matter how horrific it is, it is always less scary than before the monster appears. And when you give people facts, whether they're positive or negative, they can deal with that. You know, we're seeing now the coverage um, is different depending on which media website you go to. At what point will the media establishments that are playing the political game right now drop that facade and report on the truth because they need to protect the demographic, the people that are following them, that we need to protect everyone? Well, I mean, obviously, I I can't speak to what one network or another does or doesn't do. I will say Rush Limbaugh's much-publicized comment that this is the common cold is one of the stupidest, dumbest things that he has ever said. You know, he says, oh, the case for a fatality rate is only 2%. Well, in the West in 1918, it was 2%, and that was enough to kill 675,000 Americans out of a population one-third of today's. So if you multiply that 2% times this population just for it, you've got 2 million people. I would say that's pretty, pretty significant. Again, you know, unfortunately, it's got into partisanship. Trump called it a hoax initially, although obviously he's backed way away from that since then. Uh, I think it's inevitable that this virus spreads around the country and causes a lot of illness, hopefully not that many deaths. You know, those who have downplayed it, I think their credibility will be undermined. I think it's, you know, counterproductive and foolhardy for them to take that position. You know, I hope I'm wrong. I hope the virus 
does not spread widely, but I don't see how it could be contained. John Barry, thank you so much for speaking to us. You're very welcome. John Barry is a writer and adjunct faculty member at the Tulane School of Tropical Medicine and is the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. Well, the big picture of what we're hearing in this show is that fear is an emotion and it can motivate you to do a number of things. In the case of coronavirus, it can motivate you to do things that will help protect you. But if it gets out of control, it can also lead you to some behaviors that are not helpful. What I heard from uh, John Barry that really made an impression on me was this need for honesty. Normally, you think of honesty as being an ethical consideration. But what he was pointing out was that you can deal with these kinds of fears, the fears of the unknown in this case, if you just know what the truth is. So it's efficacious, not just ethical. Thank you to the fearless team behind the scenes, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin, who was actually in front of the scenes for this episode, washing hands for all of us. I am executive producer Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the nature of life including the origin of microbial life and viruses. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and also a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science, and this episode is Pandemic Fear. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You'll also find links there to the guests you've heard and our in-house video about proper hand washing. For more information about coronavirus, please check the websites of your local health departments or that of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, cdc.gov. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.